In the mid-90s, data warehousing might have meant using an Oracle database. Today, it means a wide variety of things. You could be stitching together a big data pipeline using Kafka, Hadoop, and Spark. You could be using managed tools like BigQuery from Google. You could be doing a lot of things. How did we get from the simple days of Oracle databases to the wealth of options available today? Mark Rittman writes and podcasts about data engineering and data warehousing on his site Drill to Detail. Today we explore the past, present, and future of data warehousing, and we touch on many of the trends that have been explored in recent episodes of Software Engineering Daily. Had a great time talking to Mark, and I think you're going to enjoy it too. Mark Rittman is an independent analyst with MJR Analytics. Mark, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, then. It's good to see you. It's great to have you. And um, the reason that I wanted to have you on is, as I was telling you before the show, that you have been through several cycles of the space that some people might call data warehousing or big data. You started off with Oracle in the early 90s. And you have worked through to the present day technologies. You've been working with these technologies hands-on, and you write about them a lot. You have a podcast. We'll get into that. Um, And today, we have lots of Apache projects like Drill and Spark. We've got a huge variety of cloud options. And I just want to get your scope, because over the past 25 years, there's been so many different products, and we've come so far when you look back over that 25-year period that has been your career in this space, do you see a continuum of data products, like going from Oracle to the present day? Or do you see it more in terms of like clear inflection points where you say, okay, Hadoop happened and this thing dramatically changed, and then NoSQL happened and something dramatically changed, AWS happened, something dramatically changed. Is it a continuum or is it these clear inflection points? Good question, Jeff. Well, that's a good, good, good one to ask, actually. Um, so let, let's take a step back and, and just look at some of the kind of the, the, the periods that have been in in, in this area, uh, certainly in my career. So I started off back in about the mid nineties, um, working as you say we, we, in what we call data warehousing. So it was a classic um, IT driven engagement that we would do. So we would go into we would go into a customer. Um, or I would be working at a customer site, um, and there would be this very, very long and expensive project where we would take data from the various kind of, I suppose, operational systems customers would use, copy it into some form of data store designed for querying, um, and then use a series of tools or use a series of kind of you know, analysis te- techniques on that data um, to get some information out. And I guess probably, you know, what hasn't changed over 25 years is that there's always been this thing of, of taking copies of the data and putting it into somewhere that's more optimized and designed for storage, doing some form of data integration and then kind of querying it. And so in the old days, it would have been copying it into, say, an Oracle data warehouse or a Sybase data warehouse or Infomix or whatever. Um, so there'd be this kind of copying part. Um, then there'd be processing the data. So you still get that now, even if it's going into, say, Hadoop and stuff like that. Um, and then preparing it, um, for analysis. So, so I guess what has been, I guess what has been a, a continuum is this kind of fact that you'd, re, you know, you'd, you'd create a separate data store, you'd copy the data in there, prepare it and process it for querying and, and then work on it. I guess what is different is the, I suppose the ceremony and the, the kind of the IT, the IT involvement side of it has, has changed over time. You know, back in those days, it was, 
you know, a million dollars a month was the kind of billing you'd pay to, to Oracle to do this sort of thing. These days, it's driven a lot more, I guess, by users and by businesses. Um, and I guess there's less ceremony around a lot of the work now as well. I don't know if you've heard of sort of concepts like schema on read and, and kind of NoSQL and that sort of thing. So we're still copying data into a, a separate store, but I guess the ceremony and the process and the expense and the IT kind of driven the fact that IT have driven it as such has changed a lot over the years, really. Um, but yeah, there's, there's sort of similarities and there's differences, really. Okay, well, let's go through some of that history and make our way to the present. And then we can get into the future, which will probably be the most exciting part of the conversation. Hadoop. Why was Hadoop so important to data warehousing? If we are looking at things from an inflection uh, in the history of inflections what 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 inflections did hadoop have on the data warehousing space yeah interesting yeah i i think hadoop has been hadoop has been has been a real inflection point really and there's a couple of characteristics of hadoop that i think sometimes when you work in this space it's it's hard to see sometimes you know we say in england we say the wood from the trees and and I guess what is different about Hadoop is, is is two things, really. So first of all, if you look back at the history of data warehousing, there's always been this kind of story about we're going to take copies of all your data and we're going to put it into a single space and we're going to analyze it together. Um, now, that has never in reality been possible to do because of the expense. So to actually create a copy of all your data and put it into one place, and that place you put a copy of data into is a Hadoop or a Teradata data warehouse and so on, um, that you can never afford to do that. Companies can never afford to do that in the end. So everything, every, every every kind of exercise in the space that did take place was was kind of piecemeal, really. Um, the other part really was that the the ceremony and the process and the I suppose the curation that went on with that data to put it into say an Oracle data warehouse was so involved and so long winded that again it never happened. Now what's different about Hadoop is that the the, the kind of the idea with that is that you copy your data into the Hadoop cluster, for example, largely in the state it came from. Okay, so it's a lot simpler and a lot cheaper to load data into the cluster, and it's a lot cheaper as well. So, you know, to store data in a Hadoop cluster is typically, you know, a fraction of the cost of putting it into an Oracle Data Warehouse or Teradata or whatever. So first of all, it's been possible to actually copy all your data into one place for the first time. Okay, the other thing that's very interesting about Hadoop is... If you think about, say, again, Teradata or Oracle or DB2, um, those da- those old school, as we might say, database engines, the storage and the query engine, the storage and the, and the kind of the, the way in which you access the data were kind of inextricably linked. So if you stored data in an Oracle database, you had to query it using Oracle SQL or a query engine. With Hadoop, you typically put all the data in one place, but then you apply different query engines to it. So it might be, for example, Presto, or it might be Spark, or it might be um, Hive, or it might be MapReduce. Okay, so this idea—the idea is that you can copy everything into one place. For the first time, it's been economically and time-wise possible to do that. And the second bit is you can apply really any query engine to that data in place. And so that's quite a different approach to traditional data warehousing, where everything was tied together. Now, the other trend that I think about that took off around the same time as Hadoop was AWS. I think Hadoop was 2005 or 2006 and AWS was basically the same time. What what were the ways in which these two burgeoning areas overlapped and affected the evolution of each other? Yeah, good question. Um, so I think to be fair, probably 
the two things happened around the same time and, and a lot of um, you know, consultancies, a lot of kind of people in the in the industry would often talk about Hadoop and cloud at the same time, but really almost because they were just two things that were happening that were very kind of big, <laughs> but there wasn't a huge amount of, you know, when you work in consultancy, you, 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 there's there's no shame. There's no kind of, you know, you, you, you would just kind of mention everything in there as well and IoT and, and, and whatever. <laughs> Microservices. Um, but there were just two things, microservices and, and agile and, 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 and kind of test-driven development and all that. Yeah, we do all that. Yeah, absolutely. We do all that. Yeah. And and you <laughs> and you would hope to move on before 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 kind of like you were called out on it, but but I think and, and I think to be fair they were kind of very different they were very different um, uh, sort of approaches. So if you think about cloud, cloud is about is it's almost like it's almost like time sharing. You know, you would you would kind of go and you and we, yeah, we we would use Hadoop quite a bit in my sorry we'd use cloud quite a bit in, in my old company. Uh, but you're sharing the results, so you're going in there and and you're you're renting effectively, uh, you know, instances in the cloud, and you're getting a you're getting a percentage of the input, you're getting a percentage of the kind of power of that. Whereas with Hadoop, it's like a, it's like running a, a parallel parallel server query in the old days of Oracle, for example, in that you'd have multiple boxes that you could actually then query as if they were just one thing. So cloud was almost the kind of the 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 the, the opposite of of kind of Hadoop. Um, so in some respects, they were kind of very different. One, one, one thing was getting shared access to a common resource. The other one was getting, uh, you getting access, sole access to lots of different sort of boxes, but you had all, had all the power of that. So they were very different. Okay. In that respect. And that's why I think it was interesting when people used to kind of, you know, the first iterations of Hadoop would, would, would kind of pull that into the cloud. And, and I think would completely miss the point of what Hadoop was about because you had, you you had you know no longer did you have sole access to those servers you were sharing with other people it completely missed the point however i think where the two things have become interesting and this is and i think amazon were, were one of the kind of fine enough one of the kind of the leaders in this space was this whole elastic kind of provisioning side so now most of the vendors that are doing stuff in the hadoop space um you know oracle uh you know uh, uh, microsoft with azure certainly amazon the idea with that is is that you know um you you can move compute into the cloud. That is all elastic. Um, you know, it's all abstracted away and so on. So now I think that Hadoop and cloud are inextricably linked and to the point where really, you know, data warehousing, Hadoop, NoSQL, all of these things, the actual kind of mechanism by which they're kind of like stored, once it moves into the cloud and becomes this elastically provisioned just storage and compute, then I think it's cloud that will be talked about in a few years' time, not Hadoop. Hadoop will just be one internal mechanism that AWS might use to store and process data, but it's all just effectively one one elastically provisioned cloud compute and uh, storage resource. That's my theory. When we're still talking about the earlier days, Hadoop and mm. cloud, it's easy to talk about Cloudera, which was started to vend Hadoop basically because Hadoop was really hard to set up in the early days. And sort of like mm. these enterprises knew they wanted it with good reason, mm. but it was sort of like, let's take something that's like the IBM model, perhaps, or I guess a lot of company models at, at that point, and have a bunch of consultants that you can drop in and you have specific technology that uh, that you can vend. And I think Cloudera did a really great job of accelerating the adoption uh, of Hadoop. What, what was the impact of Cloudera from your point of view and how did large enterprises adopt Hadoop around that time? Yeah, interesting. So, so I'd say Cloudera are more 
I'd say interesting you compared them to, to IBM and so on. I mean, so so again, stepping back a little bit, you, you mentioned that, that Hadoop was difficult to install. And so a lot of people who, who kind of were playing around with Hadoop and, and were trying to understand Hadoop and MapReduce and so on got caught up in, in, in you know, downloading the open source project. Uh, then trying to write their own uh, their own kind of um, you know, routines in MapReduce and Java and so on, and and that reminded me nothing more than it reminded me completely of the original days of, of Linux. So I don't, I don't know how old you are, Jeff, but, but certainly I remember back in the back in the kind of nineties, downloading uh, Slackware and 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 various kind of versions of uh, of, of of kind of Linux. And, you know, you would arrive at my house in a series of kind of CDs or, or, or floppy disks, or you would download Linux, the Linux distribution from, from, you know, from the Apache site and this sort of thing. And you would sit there and you would kind of compile your own kernel and you would, you would, you would kind of sit there and you would, we were using very early versions of a lot of the window managers and so on. So, so really what came along then that, that popularized, um, that popularized Linux was Red Hat, for example, was SUSE, was Ubuntu in time and so on. So I see, and there really was only one kind of like commercial success out of that, which was Red Hat, you know, and their, their model was support. So they would support kind of like Linux at that time. And so Cloudera, um, alongside Hortonworks uh, particularly, were the two companies that were just like kind of, uh, in, to my mind, they were like SUSE and, uh, and, and kind of Red Hat in a way. And to my mind, kind of like, um, Cloudera, like Red Hat and, uh, and, it, typically there's a, typically there's a market leader and that was Red Hat and there's then typically the kind of followers and, you know, in every market there's like that. So in the same way that I think li- the Linux market had SUSE, I see that as being Hortonworks, you know, almost the kind of the holier than now, um, you know, we're open source, more open source than anybody else kind of thing. Um, you so, so you also get, um, you, 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 you now get, so, so you've also got, uh, vendors like, say, MapR and so on have taken quite a kind of commercial approach to doing it there, really. But back to your question, you know, what does Cloudera bring? Cloudera effectively kind of not consumerized Hadoop, but they certainly made it possible to download, um, and work with this at home, work with it in the office and so on there. They wrapped a kind of a, um, a support contract around it, but they also weren't, to, they, they weren't, they, they, they commercialized it as well. And I've had quite a few dealings with Cloudera in my time. And, you know, in some respects, they're more like Oracle than Oracle are. They, they certainly, they're certainly aware that there's a kind of like a business model to be had there, really. Um, so I think Cloudera made Hadoop kind of accessible to people who didn't want to kind of be downloading disks and so on else. Um, but I'm not necessarily sure. It's interesting you said about they were the, the name Cloudera suggests cloud. Um, but I'm not sure what their future is going to be in the cloud, really, interestingly. Well, okay, well, we, we should discuss that a little bit later on because I want to get eventually to a discussion of AWS and GCE, and I think yes. those are the really exciting yes. areas to unpack. But to, to give us more of a foundation, more of a his, little more of a historical foundation, around this time that we're touching on this cloud era, early Hadoop days, there were these things like HBase and Hive and... Um, Hey, this, this Hadoop ecosystem started to develop, and then there were things like Storm, and Storm started to get popular. I think, I think I remember hearing in your podcast, uh, the drill. It's Drill to Detail, right? That's the name of the podcast. Yes. So I think I remember hearing that in that podcast. You either it was you or the guest who said that Storm was in some ways sort of before its time, and I. I guess give us a picture for when did we start to get from 
the days where we were just doing kind of batch Hadoop stuff and we were looking at better ways of doing batch Hadoop to the more modern systems like Storm. Well, I mean, Storm, like we said, maybe that was before its time, maybe uh, systems like Spark, but these systems where you get more of a real-time processing um, thing. How did we make that jump as a community from the batch to the more streaming world? Okay, okay. So a bit of context there. It was the it was the podcast episode I recorded with uh, Alex Olivier from uh, Qubit, a right. company I'm doing some work That's for it. at the moment. Actually, I'm, I'm in there doing some some PM work for them. And um, so so we were talking there about their, their evolution from um, from doing batch uploads to uh, to now you know, processing you know I think it's a hundred thousand events per second. Um, going into their Hadoop cloud, or actually going into their Google Cloud um, kind of environment, and so on. So, to answer your question, you know, how do we get from batch to to, to real time? Well, Hadoop has always really been about real time. So, if you if you think about you know very early uh, use cases and examples for Hadoop, they were always you know typically they were almost always working as a as a real time system. So you'd be kind of you'd be streaming in uh, you know use maybe using kind of um, uh, I'm trying to think of the words here. Actually, uh, you would, you would, you know, you would be streaming in data into, into say, MapReduce. You would be uh, then processing that in real time. You know, you'd be doing various things there. So Hadoop would always, would always be coming from a kind of real time perspective. But the question was, how could we effectively kind of process that data so we can land it in real time? You know, using like sort of Flume or using kind of you know various technologies there. But how could we process it in time? And and so that has been a problem that has been been trying to solve for a long time really and and coming from the data data warehouse end of it real time has always been the hardest thing you can do it's it's the point where you know you always start with batch there and and actually you know real time was the hardest thing to get to um and you know that that i guess if you if you kind of pick up the point at which to my mind where where data warehousing effectively becomes yesterday's technology is the nearer you get to real time and the nearer you get to kind of large scale that is where you know old school data warehousing and old school relational databases with their traditional kind of like uh, you know rollback segments and 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 kind of you know you know transaction support and that sort of thing they can't deal with that um so um where we are now is that you know most almost every system that I architect now or I would build or be involved in is always going to be real time okay um pure part of it is because people want to have you know response to things quickly part of it is because if you don't deal with it in real time you're never going to get around to processing all the data okay just you've got to process it as it happens to even have any chance of of kind of you know understanding what's going on but things like storm there's been a lot of there's been a lot of kind of uh I suppose uh, attempts to solve this problem uh, that you know because of just something a better way of doing it come along has come along um, has actually been you know it's, it's been sort of superseded so Storm was a good example there of there was nothing wrong with Storm but then Spark Streaming came along for example um, and then because of the nature of open source technology that there is no kind of central PM that's controlling all this there's no central kind of planning that is saying well we're now going to do Storm for a while we're going to do this if something better comes along it just gets picked up and it's used uh, and so the example that we talked about in the podcast was, uh, you know, they've moved to kind of to, to cloud data flow. They've moved to PubSub and so on. It's just because because there is no license investment people have made because there is no real kind of like, you know, sunk cost in going down this route. If something else comes along, it's better. You can just use it. And that contrasts massively with my old world of, say, Oracle, where, you know, you might spend a million dollars on, on you know, licenses for a data integration tool and a database and so on. And even when there's far better things to, to, to solve the problem with now, you've spent all this money you've, and you've trained up people and all that kind of stuff that you can't shift from it. 
So, so a lot of it is, is a lot of it is interesting in that you can just adopt whatever is new that's come along, but it does mean you've got to be on your toes a little bit as well. And I think that going back to maybe the title of your podcast, I think there's there's a much greater need now to be a software engineer when working with this sort of technology, rather than perhaps the point and click people that used to be working with kind of graphical tools and relational databases. Although, you know, as we get to the conversation around Google. It does seem like Google mm. is trying to at least make it an option to work within a high-level dashboard-like environment where you can be a point-and-click data scientist or data engineer because of, like you said, going towards a cloud computing model where you're not thinking of things in terms of Hadoop. Perhaps this is the serverless uh, discussion where you're not thinking in terms of servers, you're not thinking in terms of logging into a console you're just on a you're on a, like a dashboard on it, through a web browser and you're doing all your data warehousing operations through that well yes and no yes and no i mean let's, let's take the two things there so first of all so so we'll get on to amazon in a second um but looking at google cloud platform now yes you've got uh bigquery which you take it takes away all of the complexity around managing things like rollback segments and managing things like backups uh, and, and instance tuning and all that kind of stuff you used to do, you know, in, in a data warehouse environment. It also takes away all the work you used to do in terms of data modeling and, and writing ETL routines and so on there. But Google Cloud Platform in particular is, you know, once you get into using things like PubSub or, uh, or, or Cloud Dataflow, it's coding. You know, the coding you do is not that difficult, not, not that different to what you do with, say, Spark Streaming and so on. Yeah, there are, Technologies within, say, Cloudera, you've got things like Morphlines and and uh, and stuff like that, and Kudu and and, uh, and 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 Kafka, which are a bit more about configuration rather than coding. But I would say that an individual developer is a lot more productive than they used to be. But I'd say the skills required, it's it's. I think I think there'll be a whole bunch of people left behind at this rate who are more, I suppose, from the system integrator kind of world, who are more about pointing and clicking and, and doing things like that. That that is not the world. Yeah, you know, there is not the equivalent of an Informatica, for example, um, that you would use with Google Cloud Platform. Now, where Amazon gets interest, yeah, I mean, so that that's an interesting thing. And, and there are tools like, say, for example, Oracle Data Integrate that you can use with with kind of Hadoop. But the cost of those is 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 massive compared to what you're used to paying. So you know, Hadoop to use, you can start with a few dollars. You know, in, if you're using it in the cloud and so on. But the way tools like ODI and Informatica are licensed, you know, you're talking like a million dollars before you do anything really. And, and so that is just ridiculous in that kind of world. But where it gets interesting in the Amazon world is that you've got, I don't know if you, heard, you must have heard of it, uh, called Amazon Glue. It's the new thing that's coming along, which is about kind of automatically, you know, introspecting, uh, your kind of source systems, mapping those into, into the target cloud, cloud environment automatically working out the kind of data transformation routines i mean it sounds it sounds I have, too I haven't heard true. of this huh amazon glue no i mean it's it, it sounds like if you're if you're if your business is system integrating um you, you go and shoot yourself if you heard this because it, it sounds it sounds you know it, it sounds like it would it would do your work of kind of 20 people but because it's amazon and because you know I mean, i've got i've got i've got, set, I've got loads of echoes at home i know how well they work um, that's interesting. But then with Amazon, Amazon has a very different approach to how you do kind of like, I suppose, you know, data and analytics on their platform. So they have 
a, a, a tool for everything. You've got Amazon Aurora, you've got Amazon Athena. You've got all these different kind of things there. And so it's a very modular approach. But again, you've got to know what you're doing as well. So a lot, so you, what you're doing, it, it abstracts away a lot of the complexity of certain things. Um, they're businesses to make the things that are complements of that as cheap as possible. Um, and, and then, but you've got your own new set of skills you have to have. Um, to understand Amazon, you know, which of these, which of these various different compute engines would you, would you use? EMR is obviously in there, you know, Elastic MapReduce, but that again is, is, is probably a bit of a distraction and probably yesterday's technology. Um, and then you've got things like Glue, which in, if it comes to what it, if it, if it turns into what they say it's going to be, could well be, you know, the end of a thousand people's jobs because it, it sounds, it sounds like it's the, it does the work of an ETL department in, in one tool. So it's very interesting. You touched on something that's pretty profound there i think in the analogy between maybe you didn't mean it this way but the analogy between the alexa or the amazon echo ecosystem and the aws ecosystem where it's this it's it almost defies any previous analogy because it's not exactly an open environment it's not exactly a closed environment it's like just this environment where where amazon provides a world that is very easy to play in, very fun to play in, uh, mm. but it's not it's not completely open. Um, at least that's my understanding of the Amazon skills. Like it's very easy to write Alexa skills and then you're integrated with Google or you're then you're integrated with with Amazon and um, and it sounds like the the glue perhaps is is similar to that where it's it makes the inter- I don't know. Could you describe that glue thing in more detail? Because I don't quite understand what you were talking about there. Well, okay. So glue, actually, interestingly, is I mean, I've I've got you know, Amazon uh, Echoes at home. I've got I've got, I've got I've got five dots and two Echoes in the house, <laughs> and a Google Home, and uh, and everything else. You know, it's it's, it's oh. ridiculous what I've got. Oh wow. Um, and, and so yeah, it is like yeah. But so, so I'm quite into all that technology, as you can imagine. Um, and so I think what, what I think the similarity there's some interesting similarities there. So the thing about the Alexa service um, is that it abstracts away a lot of the complexity about certain things, but it also it's i'm trying to think of the analogy here really it it kind of um the amazon environment and the amazon ecosystem as a developer is not particularly directed and and kind of controlled and and constrained okay but it's not open source no it's not open source but you can go and write i could go and write a um i could go and write an amazon alexa alexa skill tomorrow um about you know facts about your podcast um, and, and I could publish it on there and it would be available two or three days from now. Okay. So, and, and that, so there's no kind of, uh, in a way, it's, like, it's almost more like the, uh, the Android, um, you know, Android play you yeah. know, marketplace than, than say the, um, than say, uh, you know, the, the iOS, um, you know, app store. Um, so Amazon's approach is very much, we are going to throw a whole bunch of things out there. Um, where it's, it's like a, it's like a sort of a, a le- set of Lego bricks that you can go and do what you want with. Um, there's no particular, there's no particular kind of building first for, uh, Amazon, the retail store. So Amazon, the retail store is, is, is the sort of primary and first customer for a lot of these things, but there's no particular, uh, building it for Amazon's own use and then making it available externally. So there's no particular kind of planning there. I think, well, obviously there is planning because they're not stupid, but there, there's no overriding. This is the direction we're going to take. You know, we are now going to say, this is how we do compute on the cloud and so on. There's a whole bunch of services out there of which, you know, Amazon, the retail store is probably the kind of primary customer. Whereas with Google, and I would say, um, particularly Google, I'd say, uh, the technologies they build around big data 
are built first and foremost for Google's own use internally. So, you know, BigQuery was uh, originally, um, uh, I think the name now actually, there's uh, Dremel, that was it. So BigQuery was originally Dremel. Uh, That was an internal service at Google. Uh, It's now been made available externally, which is fantastic because you can effectively bring in the entire compute resource of Google to do your work for you. But, you know, if you don't, if that's not how you want to do it, well, then you can just take a walk because, you know, that, that is, this is the only way you can do it. There's only one, there's only one compute engine you can use. There's only one storage engine you can use and that's it. And so in some respects, that's good because you know what you're doing. The other one, the Google, the, the Amazon one is much more of a modular approach and says, here's all these services. Just you go and enjoy yourself. You go and do what you want to do with these, really. We're not going to employ, we're not going to, we're not going to impose any control over it. We're just going to say, here's the APIs, here's the interfaces and so on there. You go and do it. And I don't know which is the best way of doing it. I, I, what I do know is that I think that those vendors that aren't as good as Google at consumerizing this and those that aren't as good as uh, Amazon at modularizing this, well, I wonder what their kind of like, their selling point is going to be. It's also an opportunistic thing because Amazon was first to market, so they've been letting a flowers a thousand flowers bloom for a while now, and they've got all kinds of customers on all kinds of different systems. It's not like they can roll back and say, this is the way that we're going to do things. Whereas Google has, in some sense, a last mover advantage, even though they probably didn't plan In fact, I know they didn't plan it this way. They didn't realize how big cloud was going to be, and then it became really big. Or actually, mm. arguably, they were. Google was earlier to market with the App Engine, and the App Engine mm. did things too opinionatedly, and then so Amazon moved in with the less opinionated approach, had massive success, and then now the Google opinionated approach almost makes... It makes an equal amount of sense at this point because Google has been watching somewhat from the sidelines and saying, um, well, you know, this thing might make the most sense. This thing might make the most sense. You know, they, they can say things like, okay, look, we've been managing our data centers for a long time with essentially Kubernetes, with the internal version of Kubernetes with Borg. And they can say Kubernetes is the way that you want to do it. If you want to be on the Google platform and you want to manage your infrastructure, this is the way to do it. With machine learning, they can say, this is the way to do it. This is how we do it internally. We're externalizing the service. This is the way to do it. And so it, it is this interesting contrast in uh, in how the the different companies have, have evolved, and you can play in either environment. And it is almost, it's funny, because in this, in this if we're drawing the iOS versus Android analogy, Google is the iOS approach in this, in that, uh, in the analog. It is, and I, and I don't think I think the other interesting angle to it is how they they treat their customers and developers as well. And uh, so I think Google is a kind of a, a very good consumer company, a B two C company. I think certainly B two B is is interesting. I think that um, there's not been a you know there's not been perceived to be a huge amount of kind of love and 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 kind of uh, you know um, I think the way they deal with their customers on a B two B basis. I mean, certainly I've used we've been a big customer of. They're, up, they're, they're kind of Google Apps package for many, many years. And I, I just dread to think the day that ever it went wrong because I'd have, who would you contact and so on? Um, but I think that, I think Google's saving grace is, is their engineering is just fantastic. Right. And, and, you know, and the environment is a pleasure to work with as well. So, yes. you know, I, I generally develop in, in kind of Google Cloud, Google Cloud platform now. You know, I use it at home for the stuff that I do with all my kind of home IoT stuff. Um, and it's a pleasure to use. And, and going back to my point before, I think that if you're a vendor 
that is trying to be more um, prescriptive over how you do things, but your engineering isn't, isn't as good. Um, let's take, for example, Oracle as an example there. Um, or let's imagine that you are trying to be more modular and trying to say, well, actually, you know, like you say, let a thousand flowers bloom, but you're not as good at doing that or you haven't got the sort of scale advantages. So I'm thinking like, you know, uh, as you're here or stuff like that. Then it's interesting to try, it's interesting to understand, well, what is your, what is your kind of appeal then really? I think you're either going to be, uh, yeah, in a way, Amazon is the Microsoft, really, of the cloud cloud era. You know, they're the ones that say, you know, here is a platform, off you go, off you go, there we go. Uh, whereas, whereas, you know, whereas maybe sort of Google is the Apple of this environment, this kind of period, and and so you you make your choice really, which one you go with. But if you're but if you're not as good as Microsoft in terms of being a, a platform play, or you're not as kind of cool or not as kind of good in, good experience as Apple, like say B used to be or whatever, then where are you going to be? I got to ask you about the Google Home versus uh, Alexa or Amazon Echo experience. This is totally unrelated to data warehousing, but I think anybody mm. listening to this podcast will be interested in your thoughts. I I mean, I have a Google Home. I tried out Amazon Echo before I saw Google Home announced and I returned it because I figured Google Home would do a better job. And I think something I've realized is that I miss aspects about the Echo, but I still love the Google Home and I kind of want to get Alexa again. I kind of want to have both of them just because these things are, for people who, who are listening, if you have a software engineer salary and you haven't gotten one of these devices, you should get it because they're just incredible. Um, but I, what I really want to ask you is, what have you learned from having both of them? What are the query types that Google is really good at and what, are, what is Amazon particularly good at? Well, I'm a bit of an expert in this, as I've got all these things now, and uh, I, I sneak them into the house with the wife not under, not really. I sneak them into the house without the re- wife realizing what they are, because uh, <laughs> I, I have spent quite a lot of money on on these things over time. And I think the Google Home looks like an air freshener, so I managed to get I managed to kind of get away with that for a couple of weeks before the kids kind of realized what it was, and uh, and then and then they saw the video on YouTube where you can get the Google Home to speak to the Alexa, and then the Alexa speaks to the Google Home, yeah. and they get in this kind of loop, and so they found that and they thought that was hilarious. So I was busted at that point. When that when that happened, um, but so so Alexa, as I say, Alexa is like the Windows. It's like Windows ninety eight. You know, it, it kind of it just. I know it sounds funny to say this now, but it. Oh oh, sorry, that's my Alexa. That's my. Alexa order in the room. I've got one. I, I I brought one with me. I brought my one of my dots over with me. It's in the hotel room in uh, in San Francisco. But it heard it heard me mention it itself. It's just an out. It just applied to me across the room. Um, so that's funny actually. Uh, I, I just as an aside, I, I worked with someone called Alexa, and I was thinking you know, if I was her, you, you wouldn't be able to get these things, would you? Because you'd always be setting it off. But anyway, um, so the thing with the uh, the thing with the Alexa is that it's got all that. It's so easy to add skills. So if you if you're one of those people that's got these kind of home devices, or you've got a Nest, or you've got all these kind of things that you could almost guarantee that there'll be an integration in with uh, with the Alexa. And if not, you could write it yourself. And I'm, I'm writing integrations myself at the moment to control various things and, and so on. I think the Google Home one has got the is, is is kind of is better at understanding language. So I think where 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 Amazon have done well with the Alexa is they've got a, a fairly limited vocabulary and you have to be quite careful what you say. So it's fairly common uh, in our house because we've. Every house in the ha- every room in the house has got got um, hue lights in there, for example. So there's about I swear about about thirty hue lights in the house, and so it kind of keeps getting those wrong, which ones you're talking about, and which rooms, and so on. Whereas Google Home is a lot better at understanding the intent of what you're saying, and so on. Um, and what Google Home is also better for is things like what would be a classic kind of Google search. So you know, if you say you know, uh, okay, okay, Google, 
what's the capital of kind of China or whatever, it would give you an answer, whereas Alexa doesn't do that really. So I personally, personally, it's interesting, the Google Home has almost got me to the point of swapping all my iPhone stuff to, to using the Pixel, the the yep. uh, the um, Google Pixel, yep. because Google Assistant is so good. It's incredible. I would say that it, it it's enough of a thing that tips you over. So everything, you know, I've got a Mac, I've got an iPhone, all that kind of stuff. And Siri is, is, a, is just a joke in this area. You know, it, it's... The classic thing, it is where you say to your phone, switch on my kettle and it understands you, say to your iMac, say that, and it doesn't understand you, you know, because it's all very much there. But I'd say the Google Home is so good at understanding the intent of what you're trying to say that it almost in itself tipped me over to the kind of Google world from someone who has got Apple kind of like, you know, written through him like a stick of rock. So it's, it's, I'd say that it's better, but there's more integrations. It's classic Mac versus Windows. It's, it's, yeah, Google Home is better, but there's more integrations with, uh, with the Alexa. if you're an Amazon power user and you order all these stuff from Amazon, they, the ease of ordering is great. But uh, anyway, I, I don't want the uh, listeners to accuse me of being a gadget <laughs> podcast So, because um, there's so many of those. So let's talk about machine learning because yes. this, this machine learning in 2017 seems to be pushing... Uh, I mean, if there's a bellwether for where quote-unquote data warehousing is going to go it's it's like the the problems of machine learning and um i think there is this uh i did this this weird show about the pancake stack i shouldn't say it's weird i mean this is where people are going but the pancake stack is basically how do you get online machine learning basically how do you get to the point where you a single training example can easily propagate through and add to your machine learning model Whereas in the current day, a lot of systems are just batch processing a, a bunch of training examples. You know, you get you wait until you got like you know fifty thousand training examples, and then you do your nightly batch processing job of machine learning. Um, I guess in your travels, does am I accurately portraying the way that like is this one of the canonical problems that you see in machine learning? And I guess more broadly, how is machine learning affecting the data warehousing space? Okay, so so first of all, machine learning is God in, in every. I mean, again, I don't know how long you've been doing this, but certainly for me, there, at, at every point, there's something which starts to kind of grate in the background that is just trotted out at every kind of like every client meeting or every kind of. It was agile development. It was test driven development. It was, it was now it's machine learning before it was kind of OLAP or it was in memory computing and so on. And all of these things are absolutely fantastic. And, and my career has been built off of faddy things that customers kind of want. And, and, and you go in there, yeah, we'll do this. And yes, we'll do it in memory. We'll do that. And, and they're fantastic. And they're what keeps you interested day in, day out. But the reality is they're just one part of kind of a, a solution, really. And machine learning is, it's, it's the kind of thing that you add into every, you add it into every conversation you have, or if you're building a product, you say, and it's got machine learning and so on. And, and come on, we all know, we all know that that actually, if it, it could well be things like just stats, or it could be things like linear regression, or it could be, but it's a thing you put in there and it would have been, you know, VR or it's, 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 oh, I don't know. I mean, I sat, let me sound slightly cynical, but I work in, a, I work for a company, I'm working in some contract work for a company at the moment where we're massively building machine learning stuff out. And, and I, 
I, I'm at the coalface of doing this and I, and I work with analytics, I work with machine learning, I work with data warehousing. And, you know, I'd say that machine learning is, it's like macro and micro. You know, if you think about, let's imagine you're building out a platform that is going to do, uh, let's look at the example I'm doing at the moment. So I'm working uh, for, for a startup at the moment where they take in huge amounts of, of, of kind of consumer data, it comes in via, um, you know, links through to websites and so on. It takes in our hundred, hundred thousand events every kind of second, goes into this massive kind of data lake. And, and the headline is, we do machine learning on this, on this platform. And we do, but, but it's, it's, it's one small part of, of what you might consider to be analytics. And so if you're trying to do things like, um, you know, maybe things like predictive models or your, uh, that's, that's sort of machine learning, but it's sort of also really linear regression, that sort of thing. You know, if we're talking about doing things like, um, uh, post recommendations, so product recommendations and so on, that's part of it as well. But actually there's a much bigger picture there about, or well, how do we, how do we sort of like, predict forward how do we kind of model things like um different approaches you could take in a in a, in a sort of product launch and, and so on there i mean I, I think that machine learning is important and i think there's some very kind of clever things coming along with it but it's never gonna it's like it's like a very lucky idiot that you're kind of with really in some respects in that it's very good at telling you this is where an opportunity is or this is where we think things might go it has no idea half the time of kind of why that outcome was kind of like predicted. Um, it's, it's, it's like having a very lucky friend who has got no idea why he keeps kind of rolling t- t- double sixes, you know. Um, and you, and in a way, you want to go to the casino with this friend because you're going to walk away rich at the end of it. But let's face it, he had no idea why he was rolling double sixes. And so that's machine learning, my respect. And I'd say that also, it's also worth having a friend who sort of understands the general kind of odds that you've got in the casino and that sort of thing. And so I'm trying to say, it's, it's good, but it's not a, it's not a kind of a, a silver bullet for everything, really. Absolutely. But to, although to some degree, uh, you know, if you get a deep learning system, then you can just configure it such that you throw more and more data at it, and uh, your friend gets luckier and luckier as time goes on. Yes. And, and that is in some ways quite promising because it's, all right, we don't have to, I mean, we will build more sophisticated systems. We will get the deep learning systems to be more sophisticated. But uh, it is this nice trend that we can see that it's going to buoy us for uh, some period into the future of progress um, in terms of where as long as we can feed the data monster it's going to get bigger and hungrier and more helpful Um, and my question to you is sort of where does that lead the data warehousing uh, systems that we have today do they need to change or are they already well suited enough to uh, serve this uh, this future that we're careening towards well, well, it's interesting. I mean, again, taking this, stretching this analogy even further than it should be. I think, you know, I think your deep learning is like, it's like a, it's like a, a friend of yours who goes to the casino with you who can also count the cards as well. So, so he's going in there and he's now worked out how to count the cards. So he's sitting there and he's kind of keeping an eye on the cards that are going in. And not only does he roll threes all the time, but he can count the cards that are going through. Now, at some point, He's either going to be found out or you'll be, you'll be a billionaire, you know, but he's never going to end up running the casino. And I think in a way, 
uh, data warehousing there is is taking a step back and saying right we've got this we've got this kind of scam going on we've got this thing going on where we can count the cards and we can we can count, we can throw the throw the sixes and all that kind of stuff but in a way what data warehousing is saying well how did we how do how did we work out in the first place that we should be going to this casino and we should be, we should we should have this idea okay so scoping out which of the casinos to go for that's kind of where you know, at a very kind of almost mi- macro level working out well which of the casinos and which of the card games should we be focusing on um, and also you know well where does where how do we reinvest this money we're making on this ca- card counting you know six double sixes rolling thing H- how can we reinvest that money to kind of like to, to maybe buy our own casino and then ban card counting and then ban kind of like you know craps and stuff and that sort of thing I mean machine learning is is good it's like a, it's focusing on a particular area and it's really kind of getting to the bottom of how to do this efficiently and it's learning and all that kind of stuff here but it's 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 focusing on one thing only and i think data warehousing and the disi- the discipline of gathering data together and making it don't forget when you do machine learning on data there's huge amounts of work that's gone on beforehand typically to prepare that data for, for analysis to structure it to to get rid of outliers to work out is this the right data set to look at and so on and so i think you know things like machine learning and data warehousing and OLAP analysis and forecasting and so on. They're all going to be part of things going forward. And it's not some kind of old person's thing saying, we'll always need it. We'll always need cars and we'll always need wood and we'll always need kind of like, you know, people to kind of shiny shoes and so on. This is not because we're being nostalgic, but saying there is more to analytics and more to data analysis than just one thing like machine learning, for example. You know, where it could get interesting is as vendors like say Amazon and whatever consumerize a lot of this and make it so this is a service that is abstracted away. What I think will be gone is all the kind of is all the work involved in the kind of the infrastructure and all the work involved in in, in some of the tasks that are so mind blowingly kind of inane, like say going in there and just putting col- putting column names on on incoming sort of files coming in where you could easily just work that out from doing some classification routine on the data. Yeah, there's a huge amounts of work that will go away that are just things that are just should be easily automated. But I think that there's a role for all different types of analysis going forward. And machine learning is one of those things. But it's not the kind of it's and having said that, we'll probably end up, you know, with Skynet tomorrow taking over the world and, and, and you know, eating us all or whatever. But I think that there's more to it than just machine learning, really. So the Apache projects, I mean, Hadoop was um, the earliest of the big data Apache projects, but now there's just like so many. Um, I've done some shows recently on uh, Apache Drill, Apache Arrow, mm. Apache. Um, oh, there's one other I think. But what are the what are the Apache projects that excite you? I guess more broadly, what are the open source projects that seem exciting to you right now? Uh, interesting. So we, on the side there, we've got a running joke where we can just kind of I mention some Apache project that doesn't exist and, and get, see whether the person still goes, oh, I know that one quite well, actually. Yeah. Um, but uh, so dr- drill and I think drill and arrow and, and, and projects like that are good. Drill particularly interests me because of the kind of of the of the so just to, any listeners who, who've not heard about drill before. So drill is. Is, is a project that is about SQL access to Hadoop data, but it's sort of, the key thing is that it, it gets the schema from the data itself. So, you know, rather than with Hive, for example, you go and you have to kind of like define the schema and define the kind of the, the table structures and so on. You know, Drill will look at the inbuilt metadata within, say, a Parquet file or, a, or an Avro file or whatever, and you can query it directly on that. And so that particularly interests me because... It, it just again it changes the game in terms of how you do exploratory BI, 
um, you know, we're trying to reduce, we're trying to take away as much of this kind of ceremony and 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 work that goes on before you can even get access to the data. Um, yeah, going things like defining data models and so on. And what Drill does is lets you just get to the data, start analysing it and exploring it and really explore it in place. So you can connect to things like you know, a Hive a Hive kind of metastore, you can connect to a bunch of files, you can connect to Oracle, for example, and do stuff with that. And Arrow, Arrow interested me as well. You mentioned Arrow a second ago because it's kind of in a way, you know, um, think about the in-memory kind of use of this and the in-memory structures and where we pass data between each other and so on. So those things are interesting, but I think a slightly, I think a slightly more kind of interesting take on that question is as we now move more towards the cloud, I think it's slightly, it's slight, we talk about which are the most interesting open source projects, but I don't talk about open source projects anymore because I tend to work in the cloud. And when you're working with, say, uh, PubSub or you're working with, uh, you know, which is like a version of Kafka, but it's, it's designed for Google Cloud. When you're working with Cloud Dataflow, which is Apache Beam, which I suppose is an open source project. But as the more you get into these kind of services in the cloud on for Hadoop, the less you're talking about the actual open source projects, the more you're talking about the services that are built off of them, really. And so I don't know. It's interesting to think about in a way, will it be such an, will it be such a, a relevant conversation to have in a few years time to talk about the open source projects that are going on? Whereas actually we'd be talking about the services we get the built off of those really. Even Oracle, for example, are building in their elastic compute platform for Hadoop. They're building their own kind of, uh, you know, transport services on top of Kafka, but they're not calling it Kafka and they're just taking Kafka and putting wrappers around it. So I wonder really whether the ultimate irony of all this kind of stuff going on is that all of these, all of these kind of open source projects will effectively be the engineering department for Oracle and so on, not getting paid for it. And all the, all the, and the way these things are all exposed out is the services that they're, they're charging money for. So it, it, you know, that, that would be the ultimate irony of a lot of this work really. And so going back to the cloud ears of this world and Hortonworks to make a big show out of saying we've got these open source projects. We just kind of give you a distribution. You know, I, it, it's, I, I can, I can see that we'll be talking less about these things and more about the services that are provided by those big cloud vendors. And now I'll be talking about open source anymore, which is interesting. Okay, well, on that note, let's talk a little bit about Google and particularly BigQuery, just to wrap things up, because you wrote an article about BigQuery recently. Um, I'll link yeah. to that in the show notes. So uh, when I look at BigQuery... I really get the feeling that they are, I mean, I guess I already said this, they're doing the same thing that they're doing with these other s- systems like TensorFlow and Kubernetes where they're making a managed version of, uh, making a really high-level managed version that's really easy to work with, which, as you just mentioned, is probably what we're going to be increasingly using as time goes on. And I think that's great because I think developers get a lot more leverage from that point of view, like just use, utilizing as many cloud resources as you can, these high-level APIs that are getting cheaper by the minute. Um, so I guess explain to people what BigQuery is and what it is symbolic of for Google's bigger strategy of the cloud. Okay, well, I, I, it's, it's hard to say what Google's bigger strategy is, um, but certainly... <laughs> I, 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 but that's never it's never stopped to have an opinion in the past, so I, I, I will kind of I'll, I'll speculate on that. Um, so first of all, BigQuery. So that is so BigQuery is I think to take the, the take the definition of it, it's a cloud native column store distributed compute and query engine. So uh, so obviously Google were the ones that came up with um, you know Big Table and which came into sort of MapReduce and so on as time went by. 
Um, this is very different in that you load data into you load data into BigQuery. It goes in in the form of tables, so it's similar to things like Kudu, for example, where from you know from the Apache project, uh, where you, know, again, you load into these tabular sort of stores. Um, you typically load in in a very denormalized form. So instead of having dimension tables and fact tables and joins and that sort of thing, you typically load in in a denormalized form, and that has quite an impact on how we do analytics and joins and so on. It's it's columnar. So, uh, so when you, know, when you query it, uh, you know, you only retrieve the columns that you're in, project the columns you're interested in. Um, it's in memory to, ex yeah, it's in memory, I think as well. Um, and it's really fast. So to query, you know, a petabyte of data is as quick as querying, you know, a gigabyte and this sort of thing. I think the, the kind of the, the, the interesting effects on it is that you, you don't think about data modeling time. So you don't go in there and carefully define, you know, you might define things as being string or integer or whatever, but beyond that, it's, it's kind of not there. Um, you just load in and go as it is. It's typically, it's, it's, it's append only. I mean, you can absolutely update things and so on, but it, it, it just, in a way, it removes so much of the tasks in data warehousing that you used to think were just essential and things you just had to always do. Things like data modeling, inst instance tuning, all that sort of thing. There's no indexes. So, you know, you again, you think about all the work that goes into into indexing and rebuilding indexes and bitmap indexes and, and, and kind of, you know, B tree indexes and that sort of thing. That's all kind of gone. Um, so it's just really fast and, and there's still, there's still a need to my mind to do things like pre computing aggregates. Um, how you do joins when you do need to do them is interesting. Um, but it's so much of what we used to spend so much time on before has, is, is now kind of, is now no longer a task you to think about. And in terms of Google's kind of strategy, I, I, I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, what their strategy is around, around big data analytics on the Google platform is, is, is kind of not quite as clear as it would be with say Amazon, for example. You know, there isn't really, there aren't really, I mean, just to be in full disclosure, you know, I, I kind of know a few people in there and, and I've spoken at some points in the past about joining their team, uh, in this kind of area, but I'm, I'm not entirely sure what the strategy is taking these things forward apart from to say, here is technology we've developed internally at Google. We think it'll be interesting for the people to use. There you go. There's the instructions. If it's not what you want, well, you know, good luck. Go somewhere else. But if it is, then if you build things in the same way that we build them at Google, then you'll do really well. And and so that's that's you know that that's the strategy as far as I can see it really. Okay, Mark. Well, uh, I think we made it through a pretty decent chronology of data warehousing and particularly moving towards the cloud. I want to thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. And um, anybody who is interested in topics similar to what we have covered, I recommend the Drill to Detail podcast. I enjoyed listening to it to prepare for the show, and I subscribe to it. So thanks for coming on, Mark. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks a lot. Good to speak to you.